0: 117, Eat the Rich. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an October 6, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. J.P. Morgan was a powerful man in the early 20th century. His company held vast wealth and controlled transportation all over America. Should one man be so powerful? Political cartoonist Albert Reed didn't think so. And a lot of Kansans agreed. Join Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a political cartoon drawn by Albert Reed and depicting a J.P. Morgan with global designs. Was Morgan a banking genius who drove American industry to new heights or a brilliant mastermind of an evil empire? Then we go to historic Fort Hayes, Kansas. 150 years ago, this military reservation spanned hundreds of acres and was home to a bustling military post. In September 2010, after two years of reinterpretation, Fort Hayes will come alive again. Learn how this dusty prairie fort has adapted to a changing world. For this week's Kanza Quiz, Rebecca Martin challenges what you think you know about the American Progressive Movement or perhaps what you never exactly quite understood about this Confusing political movement. Finally, in this week's segment of Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect the Emporian newspaper editor to what was once the jewel of the Caribbean, Cuba. Did White ride with Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders? Or did he hang out with swanky Hollywood types at Cuban luxury hotels? It's all possible when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Eat the rich. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi, Mark. Today, we are discussing a political cartoon. Um, it is a pen and ink drawing on white paper. It measures about uh, 15 inches by 11 inches. And it was done by Kansas artist Albert Reed. Rebecca, in your best artsy speak, please tell us what we are looking at in this political cartoon.
1: Artsy-speak, well, um, the artist employs unique perspective Indeed. on the scene. <laughs> That's, that exhausts my artsy-speak. <laughs> um, it's really, really an interesting cartoon. I mean, a lot of political cartoons have a lot of detail going on in them. This is pretty simple and straightforward, and it's got a lot of dramatic impact. Your eye is struck by how large this globe is, and it's labeled the Earth. Mm-hmm. It's a huge globe. It dominates the drawing. And uh, also dominating the drawing are these huge massive human hands that are in the foreground and they're clasping the globe. The, uh, you can see around the very back of the globe just the edge of a man's face. And body, and he's wearing a top hat and a coat with tails and some really nice shoes with spats. He's a well-dressed man. He's clearly a well-dressed man. And he's labeled J.P. Morgan.
0: Hmm. Pretty easy reference there.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, I don't think people of the time, early 20th century was when this was drawn. They didn't need any more explanation than that. I mean, it's J.P. Morgan trying to control the earth.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh, would you say that this is pretty i mean uh, uh, albert reed is this pretty standard like what his style of artwork looks like i mean we've got a, we've got a collection of of, we of have about 600, 600 art
1: 600 cartoons political cartoons uh, and cultural uh, that he he drew in uh-huh. the early 20th century most of them um yeah it's pretty standard although you know i think I mean our I think people today know kind of the the drill for a political cartoon. Some of them can be quite complex. you uh-huh. know you have all sorts of little figures and things going on, and each one of them's labeled something else um When Reed was at his best, he could do something with as much drama as this. And and we have some really nice examples of how dramatic and and straightforward to the point his political, his editorial cartoons could be. This is probably one of the best. I I mean, it caught my eye when I was looking through the collection one Uh day.
0: As you mentioned, the artist is Albert Reed, a well-known political artist from Kansas. Who was Albert Reed, and uh, what was his life as like as a political cartoonist in the early 20th century?
1: So Reed was born in 1873 in Concordia, Kansas, and he grew up in a little town nearby called Clyde. They're north-central Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a pretty rural background, but he always had aspirations to be an artist in some form or fashion, and for you know, for a while that just didn't happen for him. But in 1896, he entered a cartoon contest that was put on by the Mail and Breeze. That was a newspaper published by Arthur Capper,
0: ah, um, yeah. former governor yeah, Arthur Capper, uh-huh, pretty well known. Bit of our Randolph Hearst for yeah. Kansas
1: <laughs> for Kansas. Um, so he he was looking for a political cartoonist, apparently, and he had this contest, and Reed entered it, and uh, it, he won, and not only did he win, but Kapper liked his work so much that he hired him as cartoonist for The Mail and Breeze. Um, he went on to, he stayed in Kansas for quite a while. Um, he ended up doing a lot of cartoons for the Kansas City Journal, uh, We think that, which is actually a Missouri newspaper, and we think that this cartoon probably appeared in the journal. Um, we don't know for sure. And and I looked through the Mail and Breeze in the early 1900s to see where Reed's cartoons were, how they were being used. And this was a weekly newspaper, and there was a a cartoon on the front page almost every edition, one of Reed's cartoons. And uh, at the time I was looking, around 1900, he did also a series of caricatures of all the state legislators at the time, and he was doing other cartoons wow. too so often issues had more than one of his cartoons in them and that was weekly but he was also doing all sorts of other stuff on the site i mean he um he was a composer also um he did, he was a muralist he did murals um it was just it's just amazing when you start to read about this man i don't know how he slept Um, Eventually, he did leave Kansas. His cartoons appeared in national publications. I mean, uh, Chicago newspapers, the New York Herald, Saturday Evening Post. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was a big name in his day. And um, you can even find that some of his cartoons caused controversy because like any good political cartoonist, he's going to push the envelope sometimes. And uh, people were offended by the subject matter or what he was trying to relate, and I'm, I would imagine J.P. Morgan didn't take too well to this cartoon. No,
0: either. no. Which your reference to J.P. Morgan um, kind of brings me to my next question. Um, Reed was an average, an avid progressive. I know, interesting. Mm-hmm. The problem is I don't really know what a progressive is. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing, whatever progressive is, uh, I'm guessing J.P. Morgan, probably not a fan of it, and probably mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan, probably not a fan of this cartoon. <laughs> uh, what is a progressive, and uh, why does this drawing not seem to favor Morgan? What was the problem with Morgan?
1: Yeah, well, um, this was an interesting time period. Well, I, say, I can say that about any time in history, because I think they're all fascinating, but what was really fascinating about this time was that there were a lot of industrialists and financiers like J.P. Morgan who were operating in the marketplace with almost no restriction at all. Yeah.
0: Um, it's hard also f- known as robber barons. Yeah,
1: robber barons. I think Mark Twain called it the gilded age, too. That was <laughs> gilded for a very select few. Uh-huh. Most people were not benefiting financially from this. Um, So it's kind of hard for us to understand it today because we live in a climate of government regulation, and we're always talking about, well, there are certain people who want less regulation in the marketplace. But at this time period, there was almost nothing, nothing. There was no income tax. Uh, There were children working in factories. And anybody who's studied history of that era remembers some of the famous photographs of child labor in factory situations. Immigrants living in slums in the tenements of New York, no regulation of the landlords. Um, what's,
0: what's wrong with child labor? Yeah, well. Same amount of work, less food.
1: <laughs> we I, we both grew up on farms, so we were essentially child laborers. That's right. <laughs> and it made us better people, right? Um, but, you know, I, I would not have wanted to work in a factory for six or seven days a week and 10 or 12 hours at a time as a kid. And that's what was going on. Uh, I'm not saying that Morgan had that kind of a situation going in his businesses. It, he was more about acquiring wealth through banking and financing, and there were other people like him. This is the time of people like Carnegie, the Rockefellers. I mean, you know, Frick. Um, people making scads of money. So they and they didn't have any taxes essentially on any of this. Um, The other thing that was happening right at this same time period was there was no direct election of senators to the U.S. Senate. And what that means is that the state legislatures elected your senators. Well, when you have a legislature, there are fewer people to bribe, right?
0: (laughs) I never thought of it that way. (laughs) And if you
1: you have a lot of money, then it makes it pretty easy to bribe a legislator and get your guy into the Senate. Uh And they were all men then. Um, your guy's in the Senate and he's going to pass legislation or, rest- you know, v- or
0: put a stop, put to, a stop uh, to wise regulation ideas.
1: Yeah, like income tax <laughs> or the Federal Reserve. Um, so this was going on. It had been going on for a long time, but it just kept getting worse as industrialization was going on in the, in the United States. And into this climate then, there was a real spirit of reform by common people like us. Um, but especially, it started in the Midwest, and Kansas was kind of at the forefront of that. The farmers were very angry at the railroads. Uh, it was uh, a time when their income, was, the crop prices were low, but the railroads didn't lower the crop, the, the shipment rates, the way to get your grain to market. And who's in charge of the railroads? Well, people like J.P. Morgan. Uh-huh. Um, They really felt strongly, the farmers said, that there should be regulation, there should be direct election of senators. Um, They had a whole list of things that they wanted enacted. And their political party was known as the Populists. And we can that's a whole other podcast. That's actually a whole series of podcasts. The Populist movement in Kansas was really strong uh, because it was farmers and it was rural. People discounted it who were in the cities or, you know, more well-to-do people, middle class. Um, However, things continued to get bad and worse, uh, and uh, essentially what happened was when Theodore Roosevelt—everybody knows about him from listening to our podcast—Theodore Roosevelt comes to the presidency after McKinley's assassinated, and T.R. uh, is a very big reformer. He believes strongly in reform. There was a climate throughout the country that supported reform, um, and— They all together kind of formed this informal uh, movement that came to be known as progressivism. Um, They believed in a nutshell that some government regulation was good and that people were basically good, but the government needed to step in and regulate the industries to create a better society for everybody. Um, and, yeah, Morgan, you know, Morgan wouldn't be a big fan of that by any means because it was going to restrict his freedoms as a robber baron.
0: Uh huh. Yeah, it is interesting because it's a time period where you have these these few handful of people, not totally unlike today, but you have a handful of people who have who control the vast amount of wealth mm-hmm. and uh, they are running the economy. They own, like, you you know, you you mentioned that uh, uh, Morgan owned Atchison, Topeka, Santa Fe Railroad, along with a lot of other rail lines. He owned um, American Telephone and Telegraph and General Electric. And these aren't just huge corporations. These are essentially corporations that lay the infrastructure for communication.
1: And they were monopolies. Yeah. And many of them were monopolies in their time.
0: So, I mean, these guys were, they were controlling, it was a handful of men Mm -hmm. that were controlling all of the industry in the United States. Yeah. and And, you know, people like Teddy Roosevelt saw that we have to have some kind of way to control this. Yeah. There has to be the, the people, the government who represents the people, has to have some kind of controls and breaks on this. Yeah. And so that's what the progressives were all about.
1: And, and it made sense in the context of their time, perfect sense, because there were a lot of monopolies, and they were exercising. That's an unfair business practice. I mean, we still hold that to be true today. Uh-huh. We had almost no banking regula- regulation at all. We didn't have a national bank. We didn't have the Federal Reserve at this time frame. So when we had these massive panics or got into big trouble as a country, who steps in? J.P. Morgan. Right. He uh, In 1893, the president, President Cleveland, had to go to Morgan to save the treasury of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened again around 1907. There was another panic. Uh, caused by a banker in New York, and Morgan and his buddies step in, and they saved the banking industry for the entire country. Uh, that would just be unheard of today. And really, the fact that he did that is what uh, caused regulation to be enacted, sure. because people were scared of Morgan. So we don't know for sure uh, uh, Morgan's power. I mean, not him personally, but he, he, he controlled the banking industry for the whole country. And, and cartoonists like Reed played a big role in promoting that. And this is the time, too, where you, you uh, hear about muckraker journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, journalists were uncovering monopolies, you know, trusts, cabals, uh, right and left. And so in uh, Reed's other cartoons of the time period, he references trusts Um, are monopolies that are just foreign to us today like the ice trust huh (laughs)
0: this was of (laughs) course who cares if you monopolize the ice making business yeah
1: well but in those days apparently it was a big deal because you didn't have electric refrigerators you know that was how you're going to keep your milk from spoiling you had to buy ice so there apparently in Kansas City at least there was a trust controlling ice and running up the prices
0: I've looked at several of Reed's drawings now and they are um you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of political cartoons. I'm not half the time I don't understand them. But uh-huh. Reeds, I judge I base the fact that he's a good political cartoonist because I understand most of the cartoons that he's drawing. A hundred years humor. later, right? That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty easy to figure out the um, symbolism behind yeah. or the reference behind the drawing itself. Although it's a, it's not dated, right? And that's no. the, that's the problem is. You think that this is referencing some sort of specific activity that Morgan did. Yeah. It's just a matter of fi- figuring out what is the activity. And you had some speculations on what this referenced. Well,
1: I thought it might be the panic of 1907 when he um, – I mean, there are a couple of things. Was it 1901 when he created the United States Steel Corporation by essentially buying out Carnegie and a couple of other uh, huge steel corporations? Right. And U.S. Steel controlled, what, 67% of the of steel market – um, then after- you know
0: you're big when you just bought out Carnegie. <laughs>
1: Carnegie, <laughs> yeah, yeah, massive coup. Um, but uh, it also could be in 1907 during the Panic when he saved the he almost single handedly with a couple of his friends saved the um, banking industry in the country. Or it could reference almost anything else he was doing. I mean, he was this was his time of big growth.
0: Um, so, J.P. Morgan, uh, you know, he's very equivalent to, to the modern, today's modern, CEO uh, of a giant corporation, and, you know, and I actually do see a lot of parallels to Morgan and, and, and what's going on today. So I want to take uh, Mr. Reed's political cartoon concept, and I want to apply it to modern industrialists or financiers. Uh, Rebecca, if you were to draw, if you were to do this drawing today, who would you depict hugging the world? Uh, I'll give an example. I would personally, I would draw Tony H- Hayworth, the former, former, B- <laughs> former CEO of British Petroleum or BP. Because he just really seemed to love the earth, especially during that giant oil spill and the gall. Seemed to be a real earth-related guy. Yeah,
1: You know, that's a really interesting point, too, because I wonder if, you know, J.P. Morgan had been in that same situation today. I think he probably would have been forced to resign, too, for some remarks that he had made.
0: Probably. Improper
1: handling of the situation. <laughs> yeah. If it was, uh, I'm going to pick the obvious one, Bill Gates.
0: Yep. I think of Bill Gates when, as soon as I look I know, at this picture. I know.
1: And, you know, it's interesting. Interesting because they do have a lot of similarities. I mean, they're both—they were both hu- or hugely wealthy men. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically either had monopolies or were accused of having monopolies, as in Gates and Microsoft. Um, they were accused of ruthless business tactics, both of them. But I think what's also interesting is that both Morgan and Gates have turned had turned to philanthropy big time. So uh, Morgan, you know, really was a, became a big philanth. Philanthropist, philanthrop- philanthropic,
0: yeah. philanthropist. Philan- yeah,
1: one of those p words. <laughs> He's um, a Philly guy, and and Gates has a you know huge foundation too. He and his wife. Um,
0: yeah, well, you know, if you want to uh, be a ruthless businessman, what's the best way to redeem your legacy is to uh, start a huge foundation to save the world. <laughs> yes. But hey,
1: it works. Uh, it works, and actually, um, I think Gates he didn't look at Morgan as a role model, but he did Carnegie big. Philanthropist, um, So it's interesting that Gates looked back to the previous century for some role models in that regard.
0: All right, Rebecca, thanks for telling us about Albert it's Reed gone. and his political cartoon, J.P. Morgan.
1: Yeah, yeah. Since been gone. This week's Kansas quiz focuses on a woman who rose to fame in Kansas during the 1890s. This reformer embraced many populist and progressive ideals and was a popular public speaker all over the United States. The reforms she supported included woman suffrage and prohibition, but the phrase she became most famous for was telling farmers to raise less corn and more hell. Who was she?
0: For almost a century and a half, Fort Hays has stood watch over the dusty plains of Kansas. For many, then and now, Fort Hays was the last outpost before a 500-mile journey to Denver. The fort provided protection for settlers and facilitated trade. It also enforced the will of a growing nation. Only a few limestone structures remain of this once vast federal installation. Today, Fort Hayes is operated by the Kansas Historical Society and welcomes over 4,000 visitors annually. We go behind the scenes as staff put the finishing touches on a two-year endeavor to reinterpret this Kansas icon. I'm talking to Teresa Jenkins, who was the project manager for um, for the reinterpretation of Fort Hayes historic site in Fort Hayes, Kansas, which is where we're at right now. And uh, right now, just outside this room, uh, construction workers are um, installing the lighting, and we have museum staff down at the um, down at the um, guardhouse uh, installing some artifacts. Um, Teresa, can can you tell me? Um, what is, the, what is the biggest change um, to Fort Hayes from what it is now to what it was uh, roughly a year ago? Well,
2: About a year ago, most of the information about Fort Hayes was located in the Visitor Center. And that's, that's over 20 years of history of the fort and everything that's happened since then all crammed into one space. That was a lot of information to share. And I'm sure some visitors felt a little overwhelmed and, and were ready to get out on the grounds and, and see the buildings. And rightly so because the buildings are really what still tell the story of the fort um, and then when you go around to the guard house what was pretty much empty but just well refurbished space is now packed with exhibits we have a lot of archaeological artifacts that were brought up out of the ground here at the fort that have been sitting in our collections in Topeka for a long time And now they're coming back here to the fort to tell the story of the soldiers and and the others who lived here. We've set up a post-trader's diorama. We've set up a barracks diorama. Uh, We have a uniform station where you can try on a soldier's uniform. Nice. We have a listening station because it is the guardhouse. This is one of my favorite features of that building. It was the jail for unruly soldiers. Mm -hmm. And there are three jail cells. And one of them has kind of a little surprise in there. I won't reveal it. You'll be shocked and and, and scared when you come to see that, this little teaser. The military reservation was huge. It was hundreds of acres and the space has kind of been parceled out. There's now a park, there's uh, the K-State Agricultural Experiment Station, there's the golf course. Um, and then what we have left of the State Historic Site. So it was much larger. And to kind of help people get a feel for all the buildings that were here, there were several, as you mentioned, the limestone and then several wood buildings that have, of course, deteriorated over time. Uh, we have a touch screen navigation in the Visitor Center that allows you to see the fort as it looked at the time of closing in 1889.
0: I wanted to get the sound of the tape measure, but it suddenly sounded like a tin shed exploding. <laughs> so Chris, chief of exhibits, what are you guys working on right now?
3: We are installing exhibit text panels in the forms of banners, uh, suspending them on the wall. We can't drill them into the wall because it's, the building is an artifact. Right. So we're suspending them from these rafters.
0: I noticed that um, there's a lot of text panels being used with some really big images. Um,
3: those are just graphic support, that's graphic support material, That uh, the ones that are, that are behind you with all of those uh, different images of people's portraits are part of the uh, Who Are You interactive. It's a hands-on computer interactive uh, so people can research different people who are affiliated or had some, some sort of uh, connection with the site here.
0: I'm talking to Bob Wilhelm, the site curator at the Fort Hayes uh, Historic Site. Um, Bob, how long have you been the site curator here at Fort Hayes?
3: I've been the site curator here for about 21 years or so. I've worked here for uh, almost 27 years.
0: So you've seen Fort Hayes evolve um, for quite some time.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, changed quite a lot in those 27 years. Yeah,
0: And with this, uh, right now we're doing a reinterpretation. Um, how do you think uh, how do you think the 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 community of hayes which is typically pretty heavily involved in things and i mean they're very prideful of fort hayes you think they're pretty excited about this reinterpretation well
3: i hope that they uh come out and take a look at it it's going to be different than anything they've seen before um it's not just your standard museum exhibits uh, it actually engages you and gets you and hopefully gets you to thinking about things so we've got a couple of panels out there with what would you do if uh, you know someone invaded your homeland? And, and you know, and hopefully it will generate some conversation amongst people rather than just coming in and looking at stuff. It will kind of get them to thinking about what was going on out here uh, 150 years ago.
0: So, uh, Nikayla, Sarah, tell me a little bit about what you're doing.
4: We're um, putting archaeology artifacts into a case in the general store. Yes. Whatever the post is, yeah. The trading post.
0: Alright. Uh-huh.
4: We've got we've got some toothbrushes that were dug up out of the ground. Which I don't I don't think people would use now.
0: No. Why wouldn't they use the toothbrushes?
4: Well, most of them either don't have bristles or are only a part right. of it toothbrush. There's no bristles left on them. So I guess unless you want to scrape the plaque off your teeth. And then uh, we have a lice comb, which apparently lice was rampant here at Fort Hayes. A lice
0: comb? That looks like an average comb. Uh, well, this, this little comb. The little one on the right, yeah. the fine bristles with the fine teeth.
4: Yeah, that's for your lice. In fact, there may be one right there. <laughs> I'm my back. And then the other one's just a regular comb. And then all of this stuff is like tooth powder and medicine bottles
5: phone.
0: So, do you know where this stuff came from?
4: Uh, It was dug up at the
0: site. It was dug up here at Fort Hayes?
4: Yep. This was actual stuff used by the soldiers and families at Fort Hayes.
0: Really? Yes. That's pretty amazing. 145 years after its original construction, Fort Hayes is once again welcoming travelers along the Kansas prairie. Among the many archaeological artifacts used at the fort, you can also see artifacts related to Fort Hayes's more infamous residents, such as boots worn by General George Armstrong Custer, or equipment used by the ill-fated 7th Cavalry.
1: I'm Rebecca Martin, and the answer to today's Kansas quiz is Mary Elizabeth Lease, also known to her enemies as Yellen Mary Ellen. Lise didn't coin the phrase, raise less corn and more hell, but she thought it was a pretty good idea anyway. Lise lived to see many of her cherished reforms become law, including women's suffrage, the direct election of senators by the voters, and federal regulation of the railroads.
0: And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is museum specialist Sarah Price. Hello. <laughs> and Registrar Michaela Zimmerman. Hello. Today, we are connecting William Alla White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, freaking Kansas. What? <laughs> to Cuba, the last real communist country. Sarah, would you like to give us a little background on Cuba?
5: Sure. The Republic of Cuba can trace its lineage to Christopher Columbus. Lots of people make that claim, but in Cuba, they are serious. Columbus, the great admiral of the oceans and crusher of souls. <laughs> <landed> <laughs> he on did the, a lot of stuff. <laughs> landed on the Caribbean island in 1492. For years as a as a Spanish colony, Cuba's 1898 war of independence would become entwined in the in that forever confusing Spanish-American War. Cuba emerged from both independent and highly reliant on the U.S. In the 1930s, during Prohibition, Cuba was a playground for wealthy Americans and Europeans, offering luxury hotels, casinos, and booze. Mm -hmm. Um, Visitors included Brando, Hemingway, Ava Gardner, Sinatra, and the Duke of Windsor. In 1958, militant socialist leader Fidel Castro began a revolution, kicking all the wealthy visitors out. For years, Cuba was a client state of the Soviet Union, and during that time did pretty well. Since the Soviet Union's fall, things have gotten pretty rough in was what was once the most developed country in Latin America.
4: It sounds like it was the place to be. I mean, it had the trifecta of hotels, booze, and casinos. You know? And yeah, cigars. Than that. And cigars, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. You found a way to connect William L. O. White to Cuba with The restriction, you were given the instructions that you couldn't use Teddy Roosevelt.
4: Okay, so during Cuba's several hundred years as a Spanish colony, the island was controlled by leaders sent from Spain. And one such man was named General (laughs) (laughs) Valeriano Whalen. And in the late 1890s, Whaler asked to go to Cuba and was made the governor. So I guess if you ask, it's like, okay, you're governor. Um, He was responsible for quelling any rebellions that should arise, which had been happening off and on throughout the the four centuries of Spanish control. And to prevent them, he decided to put thousands of native Cubans in concentration camps. And those concentration camps kind of became the prototype for concentration camps in World War II. Really? Yeah. Uh, He was was not a nice guy. (laughs) Uh, Weiler's actions stirred up controversy both in Spain with um, the liberal... Part of the government and in the united states where cuban immigrants um, stirred up support for their people back home um, one of their greatest supporters was william randolph hearst who used his publishing empire to develop support in the u.s for a military interaction in cuba in 1898 uh, a politician himself um, hearst had been in the u.s house from 1903 to 1907 uh, he frequently supported William Jennings Bryan in his many attempts to become president, which mm-hmm. kind of backfired when Hearst went to be president himself because people didn't like that he supported William Jennings Bryan. But as a reporter covering the many Democratic conventions that uh, William Jennings Bryan appeared at, William Allen White met him several times in the course of those met, years.
0: Met William, William Jennings Bryan, Bryan or Randolph Hurst.
4: William Jennings Bryan.
0: Sarah, would you like to issue the challenge for our next episode?
5: I'd love to. For the next episode, we embrace the paranormal paranormal and connect William Allen White to the Winchester Mansion. In 1884, Sarah Winchester, the widow of the wealthy gun magnate, started construction on her California home. Tormented by what she thought were spirits of those shot and killed by Winchester rifles and under the advisement of a medium, she continuously built onto the house for the next 38 years. The final result, a mammoth funhouse that may or may not be haunted. Right. <laughs> Sounds fun.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is more haunted, the Winchester Mansion or that freaky bathroom on the first floor of the William Mellon White House? I have a
5: bathroom. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's pretty creepy. Yeah. So I guess we'll find out next time we play as a of William Mellon White. That concludes episode 117, Eat the Rich. To see a photo of Albert Reed's sinister depiction of J.P. Morgan, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. Finally, in case you didn't notice, we've made a few changes to our podcast. We added some trivia and more stories that go behind the scenes. Tell us what you think by emailing me at podcasts at kshs.org. Or go to the podcast section of our website, and fill out a podcast survey. Come back in two weeks, when Nikayla Zimmerman and I revel in Halloweenness by examining a Ouija board used in Wichita, Kansas. Is the Ouija board just another phony parlor trick? Or does Parker Brothers have a trademark on the gateway to hell? Find out in two weeks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real
3: people, real stories.